Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today's episode is probably my favorite so far. The conversation was so much fun, so I'm sure you're going to love it. Just two quick updates before I introduce today's guest. Update number one is that registration for my upcoming online charcoal drawing workshop is now open. So if you want to learn everything there is to learn about charcoal drawing, simply go to kengoshen.com slash lessons and register today. I'll be very happy to work with you. It's a five-week-long workshop. It's $55, and it's going to be super fun. So hopefully, I'll see you there. Another update is that I ran a test live event with my Patreon supporters this week. We did an a la prima demo. We painted up an orange pepper. I painted. They watched. And it was so much fun. And because I enjoyed it so much, I'm going to do two more of these in uh, December and probably even more in January. And if you want to be invited to these live events... It's just $2. What? Yes, just $2 and you get invited to all these live events for Patreon supporters. So simply go to patreon.com slash Ken Goshen, become a supporter, and uh, hopefully I'll see you on Zoom. Now to introduce today's guest. So today I'm speaking with painter and educator extraordinaire Brian Mark Taylor. Brian won numerous awards in national and international shows, and his work has been shown in museums across the world. He's regularly featured in publications such as Fine Arts Connoisseur, Plain Air, Southwest Art, American Art Collector, Imagine FX, and American Artist Workshop. Brian taught courses around the country, including the Academy of Art University, Pixar, and the Scottsdale Artist School. In 2019, he co-founded the popular online art school Sentient Academy, and he's also the developer of the popular Strata Easel, used by Plain Air artists worldwide. And now I bring you my conversation with Brian Mark Taylor. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Awesome. And I, I know we've only had one uh, brief moment at the Sugar Lift, uh, one of their shows to, to chat, but uh, it's nice to have a little more time to, to talk. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, I think that's an excellent thing that really came out of that uh, exhibition at Sugarlift, which was called Still. I think that virtual opening, which initially I was thinking, okay, that's <laughs> that's like a weird coven scene thing to do. And I, I wasn't really sure how that was going to unfold. But I thought that was fairly successful and was successful to a point where I kind of think even when exhibitions return to normal, this is like something that I don't know what you think, but I think should be incorporated because people who don't live in New York got to really have a feel of what was really going on there. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, just whenever we do some sort of live in-person event, there's going to be now an extension virtually. And it, it allow, of course, allowed me to, I think even if it wasn't a COVID situation, my schedule is such that um, I rarely get to attend uh, a group show, especially some something across the country. Uh, like that. Um, let, I, w- I would come if maybe if it was a one-man show or a three-person show, but group shows, you know, you can only attend so many art shows, right? Um, and, and it was really nice to to uh, meet some 
the faces behind the art and kind of have uh, a little bit of a group chat afterwards. Yeah, I thought that was really awesome. And also, since, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to also, of course, be in the background while other people are, are talking, I, I don't know if you had a chance to look into the chat, but people were asking really interesting questions. So I think maybe the next level of these kinds of events uh, would include something like somebody reading from the chat or saying, we have a question here from such and such. And I mean, I'm sure you've been thinking about this a lot, but really up in the air right now is the question of where, where is this going now that COVID has hit and, and really kind of shattered everything. And we're, we're all trying to see how to, how we can rebuild, you know, the art scene that we're all a part of. So I think that's a really exciting change that Sugarlift has kind of rolled the ball on. Uh, but um, maybe you can tell us about how this experience has been like for you, because I'm, I'm sure that a lot has changed in the past six months. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole, you know, finding ways to get beyond the screen uh, and uh, still interact with people in the, in the best way possible, right? Because uh, I think, you know, as human beings, we just naturally want to um, get together and, and we, uh, we want to see each other and have that experience. And of course, you know, with uh, Zoom and other means, uh, you know, that enables us to do some of that. Still not quite the same thing, right? So I, I don't think it'll fully replace, you know, having an, a gallery experience, right? But at the same time, it's also taught us that we can, how you know, all this great stuff that we can do and just by, uh, you know, on-screen types of experiences. Uh, you know, when I, I uh, helped develop the online art program in uh, at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco way back in 2005, seems like eons ago. And uh, at the beginning, I thought, you know, who's going to do this? I mean, really, <laughs> right? Uh, this is so impersonal. And, um, you know, the videos were a little bit more crude and stuff like that. But I tell you what, nowadays, you know, just the ability to connect and to, um, you know, screenshots or, you know, the sounds better, everything is is improved so much that I think in a lot of ways, you can in some ways, I think it's better, you know, like this opportunity that we have to chat. Otherwise, we, you know, not having that opportunity, maybe on a phone call, but it's, it's another thing to see each other and, uh, you know, have the facial expression and everything that comes along with it, you know, seeing your, your space that you've got there and all the master copies you've done back behind you, you know, uh, you know, seeing the space that the artist inhabits as well. I think it's really cool. And I just love seeing that. I've always loved, uh, you know, in film, the behind the scenes part of the the DVD when it comes out. You know, that in a lot of ways, especially for a lot of B movies, the behind the scenes is always better than the actual film itself in my mind. You know, to actually, you know, just see how things, things happen. And so um, I think that adds a lot to the art and also maybe even gains new patrons because when they can get involved in that process... I think they become um, a little bit more engaged in it than just maybe happening across the gallery, walking in and then maybe buying something because they're on a ski vacation or something like that. That's mm. very common, obviously, uh, here in uh, Utah. Um, a lot of people come go skiing and they don't know they're going to buy art and then they just walk in and then have this experience. But Nowadays, you know, if you're, if people are just stumble on an artist or two, then they can kind of see there's this whole world out there of creativity going on, which is really cool. 
wow, so many threads that I want to make sure that I <laughs> that I touch on. <laughs> so every time I'm like, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Let's start by you said something that I found to be. I mean, I kind of understand where you're coming from because I've been doing this for a few months and and I totally understand. But I'm sure people listening will want elaboration. So you're saying in some ways that's better. And I think you were saying that in the context of maybe were you t- when you say that, do you mean the prospect of getting to know people online? Did you mean that in the context of teaching or in the context of sharing your work? Like what way is the, where is the better fitting into this equation? Well, I think there's, at least for me, um, and I'm, I'm sure you feel this way too. There's only so much time in the day that you can go out and, and do things. Um, you know, and I have, um, I don't know if you have kids or I got, I have four kids on top of, you know, everything else. And so it limits my ability to go travel and, and do things. Uh, although I, I do get plenty of travel and don't, don't get me wrong there, but uh, I, uh, you know, the fact that I can go and see a New York show when, uh, you know, I wouldn't otherwise. And, you know, I lived in the Bay area for many years and um you know, sometimes it was just like, oh, going across the Bay Bridge, I just don't want to do it, even though I want to go see this show or meet so-and-so or whatever. You know, it's just like, you know, I just don't have the time to wait in traffic and all this stuff. But now, you know, these opportunities, we can actually have these, a little bit of an experience, right, um, mm. that that weren't possible. And so I think just with the time that we have, everybody's busy. It gives us a chance to, uh, ha- you know, like have this conversation. Right. Um, Mm. Which I think is interesting because I would like to see more interaction between uh, the West Coast and the, you know, the East Coast, you know, artists, uh, because there's just a little bit different, you know, like the Academy of Arts, a different kind of school than um, did you go to the Grand Central Academy or no, no? I didn't. Okay, so what did you go to? uh, Did you go to school? So I taught. I love this. <laughs> I yeah, love that, yeah. you, that, that this this touches on on some super interesting things. But so I yeah. studied painting in Israel uh, at a place called oh, Hatahana. Okay. Yeah, but you're you're right in, and maybe maybe I'll kind of cue us into this because I, I feel like you're touching on something subterranean that I'm totally fascinated by. But maybe the East Coast, like the New York scene, more influenced by the kind of Grand Central Florence Academy kind of European vibe that I feel like I'm maybe more connected to because. Uh, Israeli art is maybe closer to the to the European branch, you might say, of realism. Right. And then right. in the on the on the opposite end, we would have more the a la prima kind of more texture, I guess, uh, impasto bravado kind of school of painting. I don't know if you would want to characterize it differently, but that's that's something that I've noticed as well, and and am happy that you're bringing it up. But uh, tell me if I'm wrong or uh, if you see it the way that I do. No, I, I think there's there's definitely those kinds of things that happen. You know, like in California, there's there's also a focus on color. You know, part of it just you live in California and there's color everywhere. And the California impressionists have had an influence, even in the realist type of art that's being done. You know, it's just different, right? A little, just a little bit different. Um, the average pedestrian maybe not realize it, but I think between you and me and our understanding of art we see a huge difference right and so um i I like this kind of dialogue of uh you know that back and forth you know i've i've done podcasts and things with a lot of people here in the west but a lot fewer uh like on your side of the your side of the country 
history. So maybe um, bring the listeners in. How about you lay out lay out those differences? Because I I do feel like you know, of course, uh, maybe they get an inkling of what we're talking about. But if you could really set the, set things straight, like what are the differences <laughs> with no? I think that's valuable. Like how do you view the differences between uh, the California realism and the New York realism schools? Yeah, well, um, I I think there's some of it's just cultural in a way. And I kind of, I mentioned like with maybe color and color palettes, uh, there's a little less of a feeling to be true to the European school. I think out in the West, the wild West, um, there's, there's maybe a little bit more sense of, um, and also maybe even uh, a Russian or a Chinese influence Mm -hmm. too. That's, that's on our, and that's where that bravura brushwork and, I think also comes from some of that Chinese uh, school. I know, you know, some of my teachers like Hui Han Lu uh, and Xiaoming Wu um, and others definitely have had an influence on me and a lot of Academy of Art type artists. Hmm. Um, Whereas I think at least how I've seen it on the, um, you know, more on the East coast side. And of course there's always, there's always people that break the mold, right? Right. But I do see a little bit more, you know, like uh, raw umber is, is maybe used more on, on the, in the realist school on your side of things than maybe you would see, you'd see more of a transparent oxide red or a, a little bit richer, richer brown. And, and that might seem like a tiny difference, but it just shows that there's just a little bit of a um, maybe different goals, but it has a lot to do with, I think the social, you know, as humans gather together as groups, they kind of form a little different flavor of whether it's the way they talk or, you know, there's just a little bit different vibe. So um, that's really cool. And I apologize for not knowing in advance that you're, uh, that you're trained, you're trained in Israel. I, 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 I mistakenly lumped you with the other sugar lift, you know, the people that seem to all know each other from uh, the exhibition. Right. Mm. And that, didn't a lot of them go to the Grand Central Academy or so, no? So yeah, they did. And uh, I am, first of all, don't apologize. This is this is all fantastic. I, I, I love this kind of thing of, of trying to look at someone's work and guess a kind of lineage. I think it's something that we as artists, we do instinctively because as we look at each other's work, we can pinpoint inspirations. And yes. I think it's, I think it's yes. great that, that, you know, we're putting it out there and, and, and it should be, it should be on the surface. Uh, I know all the gang from from Grand Central because uh, I'm here. I, I'm yeah. in Long Island City and I'm, I'm in New York. And there was a time when I enjoyed kind of going there and sketching with them just because, you know, they're cool people. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got to know everybody. But I had a secret, um, I guess, motive. <laughs> I kind of wanted to also go there and maybe a little bit do do stuff that might be a little bit outside the the boundaries of what's necessarily acceptable at GCA yeah, so sure. i i wouldn't say that i i mean i probably would <laughs> i probably wouldn't um be able to produce the kind of the kind of works that they uh deem i guess admirable within within the context that they're working in cuz I, I have a wild streak, and when I when I would go there to sketch alongside them, I, I found that that's the most fun thing that I could do. Like as everybody was, you know, refining some eyelid with with graphite, I would just bring a box of pastels and just like make a total mess. Uh, and I guess that's the contrarian side of me, but also I I always 
because I'm in touch with all those like artistic traditions and it's very difficult for me to decide on any given day what I think is the quote best if ever there was a best approach. So I kind of always feel like if you're in an environment that's advocating for one specific thing, I tend to gravitate towards, well, there's other ways of doing that too, because, um, you know, it's kind of like in music, if you listen to too much jazz, then you feel like putting on some rock and roll. But after a whole period of like, just listening to rock for weeks, you're like, Let, let's relax. Let me put on a little jazz. You know what I mean? So for yeah. their classical music, I liked coming in with some punk. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, and I think that, I think that's, it's really healthy. And I think, um, and I'm not going to get political and I, we never should in, in something like this. Let's talk about the art, but, you know, just human nature to be part of a tribe, that desire to be part of a tribe can, uh, make it so we can't get out and do that, you know, listen to the different music and stuff, you know, you know, even in, uh, you know, a school, any type of school, there will have a certain way that they're pushing students towards and leaning towards. And in some ways that can be good as they're honing craft, but at the same time, it can also create a little bit too much of a homogenous as everybody's trying to please the professor kind of thing. Right. And so that's um, I think that's the point where I'm more towards the and one of the reasons why I experiment in more than kind of one quote unquote style or whatever you want to call it um, is I want to stay away from being kind of forced down this road. Even the one that I kind of was taught in at the Academy of Art University, you know, I I still want to explore and not, um, and it's my personality too, is not to, to say, oh, well, I, I have all the ideas and all the answers and I'm just going to keep going into that same thing and say the same things. And I know some people like that. They find comfort in that. It's all about, this is the best way to do it. And I'm never going to veer from it. I, I get that. And that can produce a tremendous amount of refinement, but that's not for me. Mm. You know, I would prefer to have more experimentation. And uh, I like more of the Da Vinci kind of model. You know, Da Vinci was interested in so many different things and uh, that's what created, he was just more innovative, maybe less refined in some areas. I mean, of course he's a great master, right? But he was pushing things beyond the level that they had seen previously, not necessarily interested in following his teacher all the way down that same path his entire life, right? That's very interesting. So I think for the for the people who maybe aren't able to capture these nuances, uh, what would you say is your range of experimentation? Like between what kind of style and what other kind of styles? Like what are the push and pulls between these different traditions that you're attracted to? You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, um, of course, uh, you know, some of the things I'm interested in uh, are 
I'll, I'll just name a couple artists and then we'll kind of see the, mm-hmm. the mix and mash there. Um, so let's, let's start with Turner. So mm-hmm. Turner, uh, was also an ex, you know, somebody that would experiment and, you know, he had that classical tradition, but was willing to kind of go off and kind of experiment with just the mark making the atmospheres, uh, the energy and the mood, uh, capture subjects that maybe hadn't been captured previously. Uh, and I think, you know, there's, there's a range in his work. Some parts of it, I just don't like, I mean, he was experimenting, but it just doesn't work for me, but I still admire him for, you know, going off headlong into those directions. Right. Mm. And even losing some of those traditional fundamental core, uh, you know, techniques in the pursuit of some of that stuff. So he would be one that I would have, a um, that has an influence on me, I would say. The other is the plain air uh, kind of tradition. And, and of course, for me, being a West Coast kind of a person, I, I'm more influenced by the California Impressionists. And so Edgar Payne, William Wendt, uh, those guys, where it was like big, juicy strokes, color, solid form, creating that sense of light at the expense of lots of texture and detail, maybe, you know? And so, um, you know, that has an influence. I also, so my undergrad was actually an abstract painting Mm. and more kind of avant-garde kind of stuff. So, and I've never, it's never left me, even though, even while I was at uh, my undergrad, I wanted to always go into more of a realistic direction. Mm. Um, but, um, I would, I'd have to say, and and there's two artists, I think that have the biggest influence on me in, in that arena. And that'd be Wayne Tebow and, uh, Richard Diebenkorn. Mm. So those artists have always had, uh, just kind of a a little bit of a pull on me, you know, the big design, um, also a lot of their work is architectural and I've, I've, I've really, um, even though I've done like pure landscape and stuff like that, I tend towards the more architectural kinds of elements and that mm. kind of underlying abstraction. Uh, and cityscape seems to offer that for me. Uh, in a lot of ways, like Diebenkorn enjoyed that sort of aspect of, and, and Wayne Tebow. Um, and of course, Wayne Tebow is a big influence as far as my, uh, some my landscape work, but also uh, also the still life, you know, and the choices of some of the subjects and, and food and things like that. And I, I think you share uh, a love of painting food as well. And, yeah. Uh, and it's cool to see too, knowing that you are, um, you know, you're back, you're Israeli and, you know, the traditional bread that you paint, mm-hmm. right. Uh, which is, which is very cool. Um, because, uh, you know, just to represent that too, some, some cultural types of, of, of things as well. Like you know, everybody's got a food that is part of their kind of, um, uh, history and kind of makeup. Um, you know, like for me, I painted uh, lots of jars of fruit because that's a big part of how I grew up and how, um, Western pioneers as they came across the plains and then needed to preserve their food and stuff like that. It's a tradition that's been handed down and, um, so there's this kind of pioneer sort of vibe and, and that plays a little bit of a role too. Uh, and anyway, I'm kind of, kind of wandering around in a, in a couple areas and that's exactly my point is that mm. all these things have uh, a bearing on the type of art that I'm interested in. 
and I like it that way. I like the variety. I, I tend to distrust a certain dogma or a certain, like, this is the only way you have to do it kind of thing, even I, within the context of like realism. I totally relate. And it's so fun to hear that uh, you're saying that your background is actually abstract painting, because I was going to bring up the fact that Again, going back to that exhibition that we were both a part of still at uh, Sugarlift, I was uh, was looking at the fish painting that you were showing there. And I was talking with, uh, I was walking around with the, with the gallery manager with Wright. And he was, he was admiring the illusionistic quality of, of the fish and the highlights and, and all that beautiful stuff that, that you were, all those notes that you were hitting. But for me, I was admiring the fact that that composition is so abstract. I mean, you could see that square and how it meets that. Okay, I'm going to give a, a, a little bit of a description for the people who are listening. So sure, we're, sure. Talk, we're talking about a bowl of fish that, that Brian has painted from above. So we basically see the circle and the circle is touching uh, the ends of a square format such that we have four roughly equal corners of background. So we see like this big circle and it's full of fish, except there's one that has the tail slightly uh, breaking the border of, of, of the circle, but a really very much like an all over composition. Like you could see something between like Pollock with all the rhythm of the highlights right. ins- inside of the fish or something really geometric, like uh, even Paul Klee, which I also, sure. by the way, see his influence in your landscapes. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I say yeah. that as a good thing because I love Paul Klee. So Actually, I think at least for me, because I, I also have a deep affection for for abstract art when when figurative painters manage to hit those notes of both hitting that uh, framework of, OK, I get it. Like I'm there. I'm seeing those fish. They're glistening like the illusion is always very compelling. But the fact that there is an underlying structure of abstract design that is that is playing such a you know strong melody. It's really yes. great. It's like that moment in music when you, you know, you think you're falling in love with the song because of the lyrics and the beautiful voice of the singer. But upon like third hearing, you're like, oh, my God, that bass line, you know, it's coming yes. from below and really moving this whole thing in such a creative direction. So I think that's kind of how I view this, um, you could say, collaboration between the abstraction and the figuration. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, and that's what's exciting for, for me, right? And it sounds sounds uh, similar in, in your mind as well. And I think also that um, we need to learn from, it's, we can't pretend in my mind that abstraction never came, you know, and I know there's some that feel that way and that's, they have their valid points, right? But um you know, I feel like let's learn from what they've done and what, you know, and let's, let's kind of work those things together. I think it just, we need to, um, and, and part of that is, you know, like those big, bold designs, the abstract expressionists would do, you put that next to a, just a fully traditional painting, maybe even something earlier, like a 15th century painting. Sometimes they would hold up and be equal in strength. But a lot of times that bold one will just come way out, at, mm. you know, just, it's just, it's stronger uh, because the underlying structure is stronger. Uh, and so I think we can learn a lot from that, you know, those cleaner lines, simpler ideas uh, that can be a part. It doesn't always have to be a part, but every once in a while, it's really nice to have 
you know, cause like you say, you can, you know, the, the death of a lot of art can be just boredom mm-hmm. or just playing the same thing over and over again. And, uh, doesn't matter, uh, how good the song is after my kids have played it a million times, <laughs> you know, like the Fro- frozen song. I oh, God. just, I cannot hand, I can't stand to that song <laughs> just because uh, it's just, you know, my daughter wants to play, you know, when it came out years ago, it, it was like all you could hear for a while. And, uh, and so we need to have obviously those new, new things to kind of move forward. And the only way to do it in my mind is not going to that same. Well, you gotta, you gotta travel, you gotta move, you gotta experience new things and be willing to, um, uh, do something maybe uncomfortable. Mm. So I'm, uh, I'm picking up a theme here that we're doing the, East versus West kind of thing. So we we were, which is great. It's great. It's yeah. great. Uh, so we were talking about color palettes, uh, the the role of umber and and the role of whether or not we're prioritizing texture and and expression as opposed to you know fine rendering and, and details. But I think there's there's one more very important difference that I don't know if you if you agree with me on that, but I think there's there's uh, there's a different um, how would you call it? Stature to a la prima painting. I feel like a la prima painting is much more kind of admired as a craft, you know, a worthy craft in itself in the, in the California mindset. Uh, while in the, I'd say New York mindset, uh, it's more like a good thing to do when you're sketching or when you're not, when you don't really have the time, but it's not necessarily like the standalone or something to strive for. So what's, what's your, like, A, do you agree? And, and B, what's your relationship with Alla Prima? Cause I think it's a, it's a deep one. It is. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely see those, those elements. Yeah. We're, uh, although you could argue that Richard Schmidt is an East coast guy, mm. but I don't think Richard Schmidt is as adopted so much in the arena of the atelier or I, I don't know. You tell me, I, but... I think I, no, I think you're right. I think there's, there's a fair appreciation for him in the art students league, but even the art students league feels like it's not really in the atelier tradition and yes. and more, it would make more sense to exist in California for the art students league, at least based on the works that are coming out of there. Sure. And this idea of layers, right? Mm-hmm. Layers is a necessary and important thing in, um, in that, that school, that New York school, right. And the refinement that goes on with that, you cannot achieve or even glazing and scumbling and building up and the Rembrandt kind of stuff, you know, uh, is, is not so much like, especially the Academy of Art, it was more like, no, you don't build up the highlight. You just throw it on there. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, and you want it all done and kind of, yeah, in one layer and, and, and just the, the, the practice of getting that freshness to it. Mm, so I, yeah, you'd I say the wanna, freshness. I'm sorry freshness to interrupt. Versus, I just didn't, I yeah. just understood that maybe I've left some listeners behind by just saying a la prima and not explaining what it is. So just sure. to make sure that people are following a la prima is uh, is a term that we use to describe a painting that was done wet into wet or in one sitting, meaning there's one layer to the paint and we're manipulating it such that we create the image and 
then we're done. Usually done in a day. You can extend the day. Like when I do a la primas, for example, a lot of my breads are a la primas, but I would like wake up really early. I would finish at one after midnight. Uh, but it's very important for me that the painting stays wet the entire time because there are visual effects that can only be captured like that. Uh, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I'm, I'm super interested in hearing what a la prima means for you. I just wanted to make sure that everybody's following. Yeah, that, no, that's perfect. Um, yeah, and, and as opposed to maybe doing a grisaille underpainting and then kind of building up glazes or uh, even just having a system of, of layering the painting uh, and having a very, it, it's having a very uh, refined drawing first versus a la prima is more like, I would say a gunslinger where, you know, they just, they just pull it out of their pocket, shoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whatever comes out, more like jazz, I guess you'd say. And, uh, you know, whatever kind of notes kind of come out, then that's more fresh and more vital. Um, and and that's, that's that viewpoint. And then the other, you know, like um, what we're talking about, you know, perhaps that we're calling the uh, East Coast is, is more of the, the refinement, the thought, the strategic planning uh, that goes into a piece where you may even do multiple drawings ahead of time and then copy those drawings onto the canvas and then kind of build it up from there to get that uh, incredible sense of refinement, right? Or even using sight size uh, to get an extreme accuracy uh, r- rather than just maybe with the alla prima thing, it's all just about composition. So if you move things around and shift perspective or, you know, like I'm moving things around constantly, I'm not doing the whole, uh, you know, put the canvas at eye level and then stand at a certain spot and just try and create a mirror or make that landscape blend into the environment. Mm. You know, there's that kind of, even with plein air painting, even though it's all wet and wet, it's a little bit more, of the site size method where the goal is to just almost make that canvas disappear in the landscape, mm-hmm. right? Cause it, it, it comes as part of it. Uh, and for me and, and in my mind, it's no, I want to, I want to arrange things. I want to push and pull colors. I don't want this to blend in. I want it to be better than what I'm seeing uh, as arrogant as that might seem, but you know, it, I think both are very, very uh, important. And then actually, uh, it, it became very real for me when I took, I took a class from, um, oh gosh, his name's going to escape me, but he, he was in the, in the plein air show and he does kind of sight size, uh, oh man. He if was in the plain air show that's on Lift. right now at Sugar Lift. Yes. Okay. I saw yeah. the show. Maybe I can guess, uh, what does he paint? <laughs> Older guy. Oh uh, he does a lot of Italy um, and uh, oh, seascapes. Um, so uh, seascapes is uh, Edward Minoff? No, no, older guy. Older guy. Well, I guess uh, I guess we'll have to put that in the show notes <laughs> when, we fi- when we okay. figure it out. We, we, we will. But anyway, he he uh, first introduced me to the idea of doing site size, uh, and I just had a one day workshop. That there was a kind of a. This is before the days of. Uh, Plain Air Magazine, Realism, and all this stuff. This is 15, maybe 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, just seeing how he had actually that frame, open frame where you look through and just really try your best to transfer everything you see here to here. 
it was quite an eye-opening thing. And um, I still have that painting that I did. Uh, I basically only did one painting, but it was, it really gave me an appreciation for, even though that wasn't my temperament, really, it gave me appreciation for what they were, what, what he was trying to do in his work. Mm. And really, really studying exactly what was going on rather than interpreting it and moving things around and all that stuff. That's so interesting. I feel like for, for a lot of people listening, they're getting the impression that uh, realism really has some very serious uh, differences depending on the kind of realist tradition that you're a part of. And maybe it's getting to the point if they are studying art that they feel compelled kind of to choose in terms of like, whoa, what do I get there? What do I get here? So if you had to kind of put it on the bar, like here are two cocktails. This is what you get here. This is what you get there. How do you <laughs> feel like they, like, what, how would you describe it? Because like, I'm, I'm tempted to just because of my analytic mind and, and the fact that I, I like kind of putting these things into, into neat little schemas. I don't know if you share that, that instinct, but how, how would you say like, we have an art student right now, they are asking themselves, should I go East Coast tradition or should I go West Coast traditions? What, what do they get on either side? Yeah. Well, I think there's a little bit more of a uh, maybe a regiment, regimented system on, and not to say that there isn't, so there's, there's always little bits and, and pieces, but there's maybe a little bit more regimented system uh, on, I would say on the East coast. Uh, I don't know if that's fair or not. And people might, you know, say that's not, but uh, I would say there is a little bit more of that, uh, you know, you study life drawing casts and you kind of go through and, and have this um, systematic approach that's worked for hundreds of years, right? I think that really draws from that traditional uh, European atelier, uh, Julian Academy, Beaux-Arts Academy kind of, kind of thing. And then, um, you know, if you're have a little bit more of that desire to uh again be a um i don't know more of a free spirit i guess it's i was gonna say respects. individualistic <laughs> i didn't want to be rude and, and interrupt yeah. but we came up with the same thing yeah yeah you would you would i i think be more tempted to go maybe in a little bit different direction and and definitely have a little bit more of an open maybe it still has some especially in the realist but i think it the reason why is it I think there's more of an influence of the illustration mm. uh, uh, type of elements that came uh, in some ways from Soroya over here to America mm. and on through. And, uh, and that's one of the things Soroya, even though he was trained academically, he hated his training and the teachers and stuff <laughs> that trained him. Right. But it's interesting because he didn't, He never produced any students of his level of, you know, just ability to uh, capture the, you know, just on an academic level, the form, the way he could, because everybody, I think, was seduced by his color and some of the other things that he went off and did later. I do think uh, there's, there's, there might be something inherent there that you're touching on, because when, when you're talking about a tradition that really emphasizes Uh, individualism and personal mark making and 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 all the things that make you unique, I think inherently 
it's a little difficult to teach. There's something uh, about the atelier tradition that for better or worse, they were able to take people through four years and then everybody produces work at an impressive level. But what's lost is that you're not always able to pinpoint who drew what. Like you see 10 drawings on a right, wall right. and you're like, wow, they're all great. But whose who's drawing is it? Again, you kind of lose your personal touch. But when you put an emphasis on the personal touch, it's harder to teach and it's a lot more hit or miss. Do you, does yes. that make sense? Or uh... Totally. And I guess the, arguably, I know some people have said, like the best scenario would be somebody goes through that atelier program, super rigorous program. And then at year four, they're told to reject every single thing <laughs> that they learned and go off and do whatever, whatever the hell they want to do. <laughs> so, uh, That's, I don't think it's that easy, at least from it's having, not that easy. From having no. talked to those people. The thing is, this is, this is a, a real, I guess, psychological phenomenon that when somebody becomes so successful and so impressive at doing something, setting it aside and being vulnerable again is a bit of a, it's, it's almost too much to ask. Like you're telling this person, look, here's everything that's making people's jaw drop when they look at your painting. Can you set that aside for a second and, and be a naive painter again? I kind of feel like that's a little difficult. I mean, I would love to see that program. I think it would produce yeah. some, some magical stuff, but, uh, but I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't blame the people after having like worked so hard to gain all those yeah. valuable atelier skills. I don't blame them for not immediately throwing them out the window. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And that's, that's a big part of it, right? Once we, we, we hate to, we hate to accept a sunk cost mm. or, you know, when we invest our time and effort in something, say it's not getting us somewhere we still hold on to it, even though perhaps it may be better for us just because it's so much, uh, it's, we've suffered, we've, we've gone through it. And so we don't want to uh, want to give it up or, or leave it. Right. And I think that's, that's very true because it takes a lot of time and effort to, to develop that craft and that, that skill set. Um, but we do have some, you know, examples of it. And, you know, I've, I definitely mentioned a few, a few of them of, of people that have to some degree done that. Uh, but um, I, I think that's, if we can do that, I, I think that's, I think there's some really interesting things there or even imagine somebody that took it even further where they went from just an amazing ability to go through that program and get it the highest level and then set it all aside and then go be uh, an installation type artist, you know, mm. You know, it's, <laughs> can you imagine that? Uh, I mean, that, I can very much imagine that because I did an atelier program and then went to Parsons. So, oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of, we had yeah. mandatory installation lessons. Okay. So, did for you the, really? Okay. I had to. So, I mean, on, on, on some level, I, but how uh, did you, how did you feel when that happened? Right. It probably um, was like nerve wracking. Like, well, a little bit. On the other hand, I, uh, I felt like it was fun. It was a fun exercise. Like I had to do video art and, and, and all that like mm. super, super contemporary stuff. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I don't know now looking back at, at that decision that I made with my education. Of course, you, you can always like hindsight 2020 and, and we don't really know. But do I feel like that having spent four years there, how much did that contribute to my artistic production today? 
not not totally sure that it was worth it but it was it was definitely enlightening uh and and fun but at some point you know here's here's my positive spin on it so the the best thing that I can say about Parsons uh is the fact that because it's so interdisciplinary the you could really personalize your field of study and, and decide what you want to go for so for mm-hmm. me I came in there you know being a painter after having having completed a, my my atelier training in, in Israel and of course being a painter I wanted to sign up for all the painting classes but <laughs> yeah. as soon as I started signing up for painting classes I started getting very annoyed because it seemed to me that people were telling me how to paint despite the fact that I have evidence to the contrary of how painting needs needs to be done or can yeah. be done or can be accomplished so I basically had two choices it, it was either I I kind of keep on signing up for painting classes and, and get upset for four years or I needed to make a change. So what, what I decided to do is I, I signed up for a minor in printmaking and I moved all my classes to the print shop. So I, oh, wow. I became fully obsessed with like etching and, and woodcut and all that super fun stuff. So honestly, like I kind of became a, a fairly good printmaker in four years. So I, I, I should say that that was a positive experience, but I, I'm sure a lot of people who maybe have gone through a similar trajectory to 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 what I've gone through and and maybe they if they hadn't made that decision it, it'd probably be a lot of pain you know and yeah. for my thesis project uh, which is when we were able to do whatever we wanted basically I decided to paint I, I had professors like telling me what we didn't know you painted like we only saw your printmaking practice and I said well you Yeah, surprise yeah. <laughs> this was a little totally. bit of a hostile environment but I mean yeah. now I'm now I'm happy uh, so I, I guess it's not like I regret it but I'm not too sure uh, yet was, what that experience was for me yeah and and I I'd be lying to you if I didn't feel like a large portion of my undergrad was a waste of time you mm-hmm. know yeah that's a good um, way of saying it so uh, because you're kind of just you're sure you're experimenting and stuff but you're kind of spinning your wheels too mm. you're never uh, developing any sort of mastery. Right. Right. And developing mastery takes the kind of regimented, whether it's self-imposed or if it's imposed by a school type system, it takes, it takes the day in day out of working towards some sort of goal in order to achieve some, you know, achieve that mastery. And so I think a lot of, at least my undergrad was, Oh, try this and try that. And mm. like I said, try etching, try lithography, try, sculpture try installation art try gluing all of them together in some weird form and um, you know on that sense sure you get a lot of exposure but at the end of the day do you have any skill that's mm. gonna actually um, give you a, some sort of career in the art I feel like there's there's something additional that I have to say about that and I, I'd wonder if if you agree with me something that I found like I guess you could call it a dissonance uh, in the mm-hmm. uh, process of, of having gone through uh, an undergrad in, in art is the fact that I think the art world and being an artist is so incredibly difficult and so totally not for everybody yeah. that, you know, when I was in the Atelier program, I was surrounded with people for whom it would be awesome if they didn't feel compelled to do art because it's like, gosh if I could just enjoy being a lawyer I would I would definitely choose that life because <laughs> yeah. it's a it's an easier path 
through this existence and and yeah. you you kind of only got the people who were so drawn towards art that for them it was extraordinarily serious and this is like yeah. do or die but yeah. in art school you know it's not coincidental that out of like a percent of, of art school graduate I get like five percent I would bet are still continuing to do art because the kind of the way that undergrad, not only in art, but in general, is structured in the United States. It's kind of like, go out there, play around, and, you know, figure out who you are kind of thing, which I think is so wrong for art. In yeah. art, it's almost like, is there stuff that you enjoy that are not art that could make you money? You should probably do that. Yeah. And so yeah. I was surrounded with a lot of people who, whom I felt were playing around at being artists. Well, yeah. I was trying to be an artist. Yes, I was trying yeah. to be like, can can we talk about what it's like to be an artist and not to play around it? Ooh, let me dabble yeah. at that kind of stuff. So there was yeah. a degree of of like looseness and playfulness that I felt had nothing to do with the art world, really. Like this, this is just, yeah. it's a, I don't know if that's too dark. What do you think? No, I mean, and I think that's why people after going through that experience, because in some ways it is traumatic, <laughs> because of how competitive it is in for one and but also the sacrifices that you need to make in order to get there you know body mind and spirit you know to 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 achieve that level of uh proficiency um i mean you're giving up a you know your weekends on just hanging out and just doing whatever with uh your you're working on stuff uh and I think that's that's one of the reasons why we are hesitant to to kind of give it up or mm. and just and kind of with the rules and things like that. Uh, but uh, don't don't get me wrong too. I you know as as a teacher as I I believe in the structure and the you know the path to mastery has to have kind of a sequential process and and things like that. I. I I don't think we serve students well by just telling them do whatever you feel and and you know that it just you don't get anywhere mm. you know and I know that because of what my professors told me to do whatever you feel start just making some marks I remember one teacher was like just start making some marks and then it will just slowly naturally come out and I'm like what I, you know it just it didn't go anywhere you know that it was I think, a total I think waste. I think you're touching on something super critical that we have to we have to spend some time talking about because for a lot of people who aren't like, for example, me and you, when we go to the art universities, immediately somebody says something that doesn't make sense, like make some marks and things will happen. And so our instinct is, okay, I'm totally doubting what this person is saying and I, I think he's wrong. But for a lot of people, they try to respond to these exercises with faith and they don't get anywhere, and then mm -hmm. they think they're not talented. So yeah. what do you have to, I, I'm sure there's so many of those who went to art school and said, well, I was supposed to turn into a great painter because I, I did this art school thing and I, I didn't. So something must be wrong with me. Can you set their mind yeah. at ease maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, and, and so I believe in the, you know, the, the research is, as taught that you know, the mind uh, grows and changes, the, the neural connections change to a certain stimulus. And the way we, you know, art is not na a natural thing. Otherwise, you know, cave, cavemen or, you know, would have created perfectly realistic works, right? Of course, cave paintings like Lascaux, they're, they're beautiful. Um, 
but obviously there's no there's no uh, da Vinci, mm-hmm. right? So we know that this took years and years, hundreds of years to develop and know the right things that the mind has to do in order to create this. And now we live in a day and age where people can go to a school, get a certain amount of training and all draw in an, at an incredible level. And it's because we now know how to stim- stimulate the brain in certain ways that it forms these types of connections. And so uh, that's, I think it's a failure of the education, not a failure of the person, because uh, everybody has, of course, there are different levels, right? Um, and it could be physical, it could be a, a mental thing, or a little bit, uh, you know, the mechanics of your your brain, your eyes, and your mind that could, that there's variations, right? We see things differently. But at the same time, you can see that training in a bunch of different fields. And the research shows that you get stimulated in certain ways and train certain ways. You will definitely, uh, if you continue with it for, you know, they talk about 10,000 hours and that's debatable uh, of, of how much it takes or whatever, but it, but you can see that, that people can re- receive a level of proficiency in any type of activity. Uh, if they and get so that how stimulus. Would you de- how would you define that failure? Because I, I feel like it's a, it's common. A lot of people yeah. describe well, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, there's an ideology there behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, some ideologies produce certain results. And, and I what's think the ideology, <laughs> anything goes right. Mm. Will not produce craft. Interesting. I'll tell you, you know, how I, how I usually describe it. So for me, and maybe, maybe you disagree uh, but there's there's a fundamental disconnect be- between the necessary structure for an academic institution in terms of credentialing for what it means to have gotten this piece of paper uh, called a degree that is a little bit incompatible with what it takes to be an artist. And the example that I like giving is imagine if somebody wanted to be a swimmer and then they had to go get a degree in swimming. This sounds ridiculous on its face because instinctively we understand, well, if he wants to be a swimmer, he should be at the pool all the time swimming and getting coached by professional swimmers. Like, what are you talking about getting a degree in swimming or a degree in soccer or a degree in fencing? Like the more that I think about it and reflect on, on my experience in the academy and also on the things that I'm doing in my art education practice and in trying to teach people how to paint, I feel like the majority of what I do sounds more like a coach in the gym, like move your hand this way. No, stand farther away. No, you need to be going slower. No, you need to be going faster. Like all these things that have to do with training your eye, training your hand. These are physical things. I'm like a dance teacher. And yeah. if you wanted to go get a degree in sports, a lot of people would laugh at you and say, you're, you're, that's not how you do sports, buddy. And I kind of think like art has, has a definition problem in the academy. And it, it's just being taught like an academic pursuit, which it's less, it's less an academic pursuit and more like a sports or a lifestyle thing that you have to be immersed with and constantly in contact with people who are a few steps ahead of you. Yeah, I think maybe you could couch it as more of a trade school kind of thing or, Mm. you know, where you're actually truly learning a skill, uh, just like coding or, you know, like you said, uh, any of the sports. And 
a lot of times, I think in most of the schools here in the US, uh, I'm not going to speak around the world, but um, although I think there's some application there, I think a lot of people are treating fine art nowadays as more of an intellectual pursuit than an actual uh you're you're not making a product anymore it's just an idea mm. so like art is more i think art schools are more really philosophers than they are visual artists and so i think that's that's the the, the grand failing of that art became you know it became more about words what you say about the whatever pile of crap on the middle of the floor than the actual craft that goes into it and I the craft that, oh sorry yeah so craft craft actually takes the the motor skills but they're not teaching any motor skills they're just teaching how to write a paper maybe to get a grant to present some sort of idea i think that's brilliant i think that's so on point and so true and i think this also kind of pivots towards something different that that i wanted to talk about because first of all we can i think at least i can totally understand why this uh i guess we would call it faulty definition of what art is or what art should be why that's being taught and i think that's because a lot of the most successful artists in the world and if we were to define successful by well paid gallery representation like these people are of the if we give them the maximum amount of credits, we would call them the philosophers or the art entrepreneurs. These are people who don't have necessarily a devotion to the craft. They have a devotion to the concept, to the idea. And however this piece gets fabricated, you know, it's okay with them. Uh, and these are the people that when you, when you Google whatever top selling artists in the world, you would need to get past the top 50 to maybe find somebody who knows how to hold a brush. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little ridiculous, but yeah. if you look at what, what schools are supposed to teach, they're supposed to look at, you know, the top of the field and say, oh, well, well, we need to make people do that. And hence that's, that's kind of what's being taught. And I think there's there's a place where where that kind of breaks down, which I think is super interesting. And that's actually on Instagram. Like you could see people who are art world successful, famous, like people who are in the Biennale and, you know, artists that when I was in Parsons, I was looking at their work and I'm thinking, man, like top of the field. And then you look at their social media presence and it's like nothing. So right. on on one hand, it's it's really interesting because probably they don't need it. You know, they get by perfectly without it. But also yeah. there's there's a degree to which art was democratized by Instagram, where the two of us, I don't think we were going to show whatever in the MoMA anytime soon. I don't know. Maybe you are. I don't think I don't know if I will. <laughs> Let me not jinx it. But but the people who do show at the MoMA, they kind of don't really need to have, I guess, the the people on their side but then there's there's right. people like you you're like huge on instagram and, and i do okay and i think when people get to decide who they're following uh they don't follow the people who are at the biennale they want to see the bowl of fish so i think instagram yeah. has has actually given people like us uh an interesting window that is that is the yeah that doesn't um that wasn't really available when the galleries right. kind of held everything in their hand Right. Well, that's that's it. And and I would say the the top fifty artists are more politicians than they mm. are artists. Uh, meaning, because of 
certain um, connections that they have. Uh, part of it, you know, to be one of those artists, you have to come from certain pedigrees, right? Just like in the U.S., you have to have certain connections to even be considered a presidential candidate, right? Whether it's wealth of some sort or, you know, but you're right. I think that's why it's an exciting time to live the de democratization of art. And now we can't, you can't say that people just want to see um, what the people anointed by the 2000 people in the world, the elites that kind of select and select which artists become popular, right? Anymore. Now there are also other ways to, to, to get around that. And, and I think that's, what's making art, a uh, very interesting dynamic and there's no more uh, type of style or genre that's, uh, you know, um, has a supremacy over other types. Things are more fragmented. Even um, though I think if you look at Instagram, you would see that, uh, I don't want to get this wrong. Somebody is going to come up with the statistics and like totally defend oh. my point. And, and, and if, and if that's the case, then I retract it, but it looks like, realism is buzzing yes on instagram realism is buzzing so all that stuff that when you go to all the fancy galleries they would say oh like why would anybody do that this is old-fashioned this is right. so passe when you let people vote with their follower count they say i want more of brian's uh yes. fish and ken's breads or or even brian's breads your breads are <laughs> very handsome i should say uh but it's it's interesting how as you were saying these these elite gatekeepers they want to deem some like the majority of realist art is mostly irrelevant but when people get to decide what art they want to incorporate in their life they don't necessarily pick the biennale people absolutely and and the thing is is that there's a it's like they want it to feel elite. You want to make it so it's just for them, you know, that, that little group. Right. And so it's beyond the understanding of a normal person. And I think that the, uh, with Instagram and things like that, it's kind of broken that in a, in a sense that the, now there's, there's two worlds, two very viable worlds. They can have their world and they can all, you know, shake each other's hands and, hang out with each other and nobody really even cares, but the majority of humanity actually does and are engaged, like you say, in, in realism or things that actually can mean something to all types of all walks of life. Right. And all mm -hmm. different types of people. And so I think that's, that's why it is. It's kind of a rebirth it helped to give uh, realism a, a, a new kind of, rebirth because of because of this kind of situation and and that's what i find a lot of uh at least personally because of this is what i like this is what i like to see uh it gives it, it's it's an exciting time i think it's really something that will also continue to grow as people realize that you know it, for me as a kid i couldn't find any of this realist stuff in these books or it was very hard to find anybody that um I remember seeing the book, uh, a Richard Schmidt, all a prima book back when I was in my undergrad and like, where is, where was it? You know, I was like, <laughs> is there a world out there that I'm just totally unaware of? Right. And I didn't know about other, you know, like the grand central ateliers and, and, uh, or the Academy and, and different places like that. It just didn't know. 
you know, cause it, it wasn't, you didn't have the ability to even search it up. But now that we have that opportunity, we have this opportunity, like you and I have this exchange. I think that's changing everything. And, um, and I do, I do think for the better as well. That's such a positive note. I think, I think that's a great note to end on. So Brian, could you tell people where they can find you? Uh, yes. Uh, Instagram is usually the best, most up-to-date place, but you can just go to brianmarktaylor.com on my website, Brian with a Y. I always tell people I have three first names, so it makes it easy to remember. But um, uh, just find me on Instagram. If you have any questions about what we discussed or you want to tell me <laughs> I'm wrong, I'd love to hear from you. And uh, you know, my characterization of it's always a dangerous thing to do that you put me in uh, that spot, but it's also really fun to talk about. I yeah, love. let's embrace the danger. And if everybody thinks I that we're it. wrong or that we miss something or that we need to follow up, uh, just let us know. And maybe yes, maybe we'll do it. another conversation to clear up the mess that we've caused. Yes, I love it. I <laughs> so love Brian, it. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.